0: yourself. You I oh. got an interesting email and hey there, Carol the coach here and you know that you can always email me at carol at carolthecoach.com and I will help you figure out what you need to do. I got to tell you, it's mind-boggling because I have 750 thousand open downloads a week, but I want, I want you to know that I am in it for you guys. So if you're an addict and you have questions, if you're a partner and you have questions, if you're not really sure what the deal is, I just want you to know I absolutely want to be a resource for you. So let me share with you this email I got this week. It says, Dear Carol, long-time listener of your podcast. I am grateful for all you do for addicts and the betrayed partners. I know you're very busy, so I hope you can answer this. She says, I wanted to reach out and ask this, although I know the answer in my gut. I just felt like reaching out as I am feeling really isolated today. This is a betrayed partner. Um. Now, already she said, I know the answer in my gut. And you all have heard me say there are three ways to make a decision. The first way is to, A, ask yourself, what do I think? Access that intellectual part of yourself and say, what do I think? What do I think about this? The second way is to access your heart. Now, your heart is your emotions. How do you feel? What do you feel about this situation? Um, Memo here, feelings get you into trouble more often than not. And then the third way is your intuition. What does my gut say? Okay, she said, I know the answer in my gut. I just felt like reaching out. And here's what I know to be true, and I do this all the the time myself. You know, it helps when you talk out loud how you're feeling, what you're thinking, what you believe, to somebody that you trust. When you do that, you're much more likely to believe yourself. So she says, my husband and I have been married 20 years, and we have a daughter and a son, age 8 and 14. I have tried to be the supportive wife, trying to work on my own healing, but I've reached a point where I feel like his recovery commitments aren't consistent. For accountability software, he has not acted out and has been sober, she puts that in quotes. But he is at a place now where he is so stressed about money that he's overworking and states he does not have time for recovery work right now. Here's what her gut says, that this is not acceptable. I know addicts must be consistent, but I am being met with resistance and anger. I live in the United States, and there isn't much help in my small town. We have received help via phone or online Zoom. Now, for you all that don't know, Zoom is like Skype, but it's HIPAA compliant. I do Zoom. It's a wonderful venue if you don't have any help, but my, my belief is face-to-face is always the best. My husband found Sex Addicts Anonymous, but he only went once. And I am so tired of his excuses. I just don't know what else to do. Part of the problem is that he is not doing the work that I know he needs to do. Now, I know addicts must be consistent, but I'm being met with resistance and anger. And then when he says he doesn't have time to work on his recovery, it makes me believe that he really doesn't want to. What do you think, Carol? What should I do? Okay, now you all know that I can't tell you what to do. But I will tell you my experience. And that is that this sex addiction is not something you can play with. You can't dabble in recovery. You've got to work it with a vengeance. And if somebody is really overworked, working lots and lots of hours, that's not healthy in and of itself. So he needs to find some work-life balance and balance his work life with recovery life, with relaxation life, with fun life. And if he's not willing to work on his recovery He's either going to show up and be marginal at best, or he's not going to be able to do the work it takes to not be a sex addict. Now, you know, I said that, but the truth of the matter is, once a sex addict, always a sex addict, but in recovery, you can be an amazing human being. It transforms you psychologically and that makes a difference in your own life and in the family. So this woman says to me, married 20 years, he's not doing the work, what do you think? Well, what I think is that it is really time for you as a betrayed partner to take care of yourself. And if you're going to have boundaries about what you want him to do to feel safe, and secure, and stabilized, you need to have consequences too. Those consequences might look like, if you're not going to do the work, you can't live here. If you're not going to do the work, I'm going to ask for therapeutic separation. If you're not going to do the work, we cannot sleep together. If you're not going to do the work, we can be roommates in this house. But that's it. I know those are really um, intense consequences. But this is an intense disease. And, you know, this disorder needs major focus and emphasis. I'm not just saying this to get everybody to work. This is brain science. And Patrick Carnes says it best when he says, if you do not have an entire committee, if you don't go to your meetings, whatever they are, if you don't get a mentor or a guide, if you don't do the reading, do the work, develop the fellowship, if you're not working with a CSAT, a certified sex addiction therapist, if you aren't participating in a sexual sexual addiction group, if you're not praying, meditating and or journaling, and you don't have those accountability tools to help you be honest. You're doomed for failure. So that's my answer. And I know it seems really negative because you already are saying he's not doing much. But the truth hurts and it helps. You as a betrayed partner want the truth. I'm here to give you that. And I'm here to give that to the addict. And there are many ways he can get the help that he needs and do the hard work even if there is nobody in your community. He can do it online. He can do it via phone coaching. Those aren't the best ways, but they are ways. He can do the reading. He can do the journaling. He can go to a polygrapher, even if he has to travel three hours away, three times a year. There are lots of things he can do. But the truth of the matter is most addicts won't until their wife Your partner becomes steadfast in what she needs to feel safe. Okay, that's my advice. Every night when I'm doing this show, I drink a cup of coffee. You know, I started at 8, seeing clients, and it's 9 o'clock my time. I had a two-hour break. Now, I'm not saying that so that you'll all go, oh, poor Carol. But the truth of the matter is I need a little boost. So I'm drinking a cup of coffee, and I want to just tell you about a faux pas that I made today. I'm working on my online course, Help or Heal, for those people that need to see me and hear the important parts of my book and study the course. And I, many of you know if you've listened to the show, I wanted it done by the third week in July. I gave myself a month. Now I just talked to somebody that I really admire. He said it's taken 18 months to do his online course. Well, I promise you, I promised myself I'm going to get this done by the end of August. So I made the commitment, as I usually do, when something isn't happening fast enough, I will put forth the effort to get it done. And if that means I have to wake up at 4, because I normally get up at 5, I'll do it. So I set my alarm for 4.15, and I've laid there for five minutes, and then I said, get up and get going. You need to get this done. And I, I really like doing it. It's just a learning curve, and I'm Whenever I have to learn something and it takes me a long time, it makes me kind of mad. So I get up and I go to turn on my TV in the kitchen while I make my coffee, and my local news isn't on. And I mean, it immediately hit me. O M G. It's not 4:15, and I look at the clock, and it's 3:15. And I'm like, oh, are you kidding me? But, of course, I was already dressed to work out because I work out in the morning. And I was in the process of making the coffee. So I stayed up and I said, you are going to be exhausted by 9 o'clock. Now, i got to tell you, when I'm exhausted, the only thing that jazzes me are friends, family. And co-workers that have a lot of energy. And tonight, I am super jazzed to be interviewing a man who has done an amazing job of studying wounding. And he really believes that most of the time, it's at the, wounding is at the root of sexual addiction. So I'm going to be interviewing Troy Love. He's an LCSW. And he has written a book. And he's going to talk to you about that book, Finding Peace. And he's going to be talking about how we're all wired for connection, neurologically, biologically, sexually, emotionally, and socially. And he believes that connection is part of what helps us thrive and survive, especially in an increasingly toxic world where there's a lot of isolation. And so... He's going to help you to look at, are there attachment wounds in your life that you've never really healed? And if there are, you know, how do those attachment wounds fuel negative core beliefs? And you know as a coach, I'm a big believer and most of us have at least one or two negative limiting beliefs. And so we're going to find out more about what Todd thinks is really the answer to getting healthy and to managing addiction and to working on attachment because attachment is connection and connection is the antidote for sexual addiction. If you've read Help or Heal, my book, you know that. I say that in the first chapter. So I'm really very excited to be talking with Troy. Troy Love, welcome to Sex Help with Carol the Coach.
1: Thank you, Carol. It's been it's amazing to be here. I'm really excited to be with you tonight.
0: Yes. Well, you are doing incredible work around a very important topic that, you know, I actually teach a course for um, clinicians and coaches working with sex addiction and betrayed partners, and I say, we've got to fix attachment. Attachment is at the root of all these kinds of addictions. So Troy, tell us a little bit about how you got involved in this field and um, what your journey has been like.
1: Yes, of course. So uh, like many of us who got into this field, I got into this field because I had my own work to do. I remember, When I was getting my bachelor's in social work, my professor told me, you know, if you want to be a good therapist, if you want to be a good uh, social worker, you're going to need to go to therapy yourself, go do your own work. And at the time, I was in such denial about what was going on in my life that I thought, ah, I'm fine. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, But what was going on underneath underneath all that was that I was struggling with a porn addiction. And I didn't even know that it was an addiction. Uh, I didn't even know that that was a name for it. And it wasn't until I was getting my master's. And I'm sitting in a drug and alcohol rehab program as an as a intern. And I'm hearing these people talk about their addictions to other substances. And I remember going home and telling my wife, I think I'm an addict I can relate to what they're saying, this this desire to stop at this compulsion to not be able to and this cycle that I keep getting myself stuck in and that was when I really uh, opened my eyes that yeah, I have some work to do and it was around that time that I started looking for my own therapist and started to do the work of healing this this addiction for me and that led me to really start reading all kinds of Different books and and watch movies and and uh, learn as much as I could about this field of addiction recovery, and I learned uh, more than just even addiction recovery, but just recovering from what I later began to call attachment wounds, because I learned that that's really at the foundation of all of this. Um, but that's that's kind of how I started was my own wanting to scramble out of of the black hole that I was feeling, and I, and I couldn't take it anymore. Something had to change.
0: Yeah, you know, I always think that's the best way to do it. When you yourself are hurting and you've got that desire to make your life better, it just works that you find the path that you need to, to, to in your words, find peace and serenity in your life. So,
1: Absolutely. so tell us
0: now, what did you do?
1: <laughs> so, uh, so I I was we moved to where I still am living, which is Yuma, Arizona, which is in the bottom of Arizona. We're 15 minutes away from the border, and we're a rural town. I moved here about 20 years ago. There were no therapists um, in my area that knew anything about any of this, and there was probably only five or six to pick from anyway so I uh, got online and I, I found a therapist um, who wasn't a CSAT, but but was familiar enough with this whole process to at least get me started and I started to do some therapy with her over the phone and that was really the first time I started to dig deep into the work and at the same time I started to go into some retreats, I went to some men's retreats and as I'm going through this personal journey of therapy and going to some of these retreats and, and trying to figure out how I could understand this for myself, I began to develop this model that I call the finding peace model now that really at the core of it is, is attachment wounds. And I, and I realized that I have a huge abandonment wound. I was adopted when I was five days old And although I know that my birth mother uh, made that choice because she loved me, just the bottom, uh, just the fact that I was in her, in her womb for nine months, I could hear her heartbeat. I could hear her voice and then to be born and never to be able to hear that again. I was whisked away. The nurses took me away. It was a closed adoption. They didn't even let her hold me. They, they took me away and put me in a, cradle and I was in a cradle in the nursery for five days until my parents came to pick me up. Just that in and of itself, even though I didn't remember, I can, I can imagine the trauma that that was that abandonment and it started to make some sense for me. And then uh, growing up, I was also uh, bullied a lot. So there was a lot of rejection for me and those two wounds really played a significant part in my addiction because I discovered when I found porn that porn was willing to accept me whenever it was never going to leave me. It would be there whenever I needed it to be. And so in a very dysfunctional way, it was trying to get those needs met. And I, as I started to explore that, I, I started to ask myself, what other kind of attachment wounds are there? And I finally boiled it down to six different attachment wounds that I really um, identify with Nearly every one of the clients that I have uh, come in to meet with me, they're also identifying, yeah, I have some of these wounds. In fact, I have a poster of the wounds up on the wall, and I'll I'll listen to them for a little bit, and then I'll have them look over, and I'll say, which one of those wounds are yours? And mm, like 95% of the clients will identify a couple, or there's a couple who say, I don't have any wounds. And then I'm like, well, that's curious. How come you're here to see me then? And then we start to explore it a little bit and we're able to identify that. So that's, that's, that's how I started this journey of trying to just conceptualize for my own understanding in a way that could make sense for me. Once I identified those wounds, then I could start to identify, well, what am I going to do to heal these things so that I'm not continuing to turn to porn as a way of numbing the pain associated with these things? What can I do to heal it so that that's not what I keep turning to?
0: Yeah, I think that's amazing. So will you talk to us about the six types of
1: attachment wounds? Yeah, so the first one is loss, and loss it can come from all kinds of sources. It's not just loss of a loved one, although that can be one of the the, the aspects of that wound itself, but loss of a loved one, it could be loss of a job, it could be uh, a loss of a uh, an arm or a leg or you've got diabetes or any kind of a loss that's associated where you had something in your life and now it's gone and it's not coming back. And that can be incredibly painful for individuals. Uh, The second one is neglect. And there's a spectrum of neglect. There's the Child Protective Services version of neglect where parents are not providing food or clothing for their children, the two-year-old is wandering out on the street in their diaper, um, that's a pretty severe form of neglect, which can be very painful. A lot of the people that I work with haven't experienced that kind of neglect. They experience neglect on the other side of the spectrum, which is they lived in a home where they, their mom and dad or their mom or their dad or other caregivers were living in the home, but they never made time for the individual. And so even though they were in the home, they had food and shelter and clothing, they couldn't get their attention. They were too busy. My uh, my dad, his favorite pastime was sitting in front of the television for hours and hours and hours, not a whole lot of interaction. So that is a neglect wound where they're physically present. My basic needs are being met, but the attention that I need is not being met. The, The next one is rejection and rejection is self-explanatory, it's where people in your life send a message to you that there's something wrong with you. You're not wanted, you don't belong here. So in my case, it was bullies who made fun of me and called me really horrible names, but it could also be you're, you're not selected for a team, or you're not selected for a job, or you get fired, or those kind of rejection where someone is conveying to you that you're not wanted you're not needed here the fourth wound is abandonment and i I alluded that a little bit earlier where in one moment the person is there and then the next minute they're gone and you don't understand why they left and it's it's different than loss because usually when someone dies Uh, it's expected or at least there's some foresight most of the time where you know that this person is passing away and you have an opportunity to say goodbye but in abandonment the person just leaves they're not there there's no explanation about why they uh, they're gone you can't there's no closure with abandonment it's like you're there but all of a sudden you're not betrayal which uh, which is one that we work with a lot with with the partners of sex addicts that's a really tender wound where you trusted someone you put your heart and your and your life in to con- connecting with somebody else and then they did something that that betrayed that trust they lied they cheated they stole they they did something that broke that trust, and, and now that wound is very profound in it. And it's, and it's hard to move through life without believing that there's really anybody that is trustworthy anymore. And then the last is abuse sexual abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse. It's where someone is purposely inflicting harm onto somebody else because of their own woundedness. So, any of those six loss, neglect, rejection, abandonment, betrayal, or abuse those those wounds really play at the core of both the betrayed partner and their healing their healing journey as well as the addict and, and their healing journey of how what can we do to heal these wounds because they 're so painful.
0: Boy, I can hear that, you know I say two things about those six types of attachment wounds you know Patrick Carnes said that you know in addition to being physically emotionally sexually abused that that neglect that you were talking about earlier is by far mm-hmm. one of the toughest wounds because it doesn't get acknowledged or validated and yeah. so I always work with people who seem to have a dismissive attachment disorder. They, they're they like, it's not that big of a deal. I'm fine. I didn't need that. And I say, <laughs> you know, our guru, Patrick Carnes, said that, that was actually worse than being sexually, physically, or emotionally abused. And then what I know to be true about working with partners is that partner betrayal is way worse than sexual abuse. I mean, it mm. is... A situation where as an adult or as a young person that is is old enough to have gotten married, to have been betrayed by the person that you were supposed to trust the most is heartbreaking and shattering. So I agree with all six wounds. I just wanted to reemphasize. I know there's probably not a worse, but I'm telling you, Patrick says neglect Mm -hmm. is. And my experience for partners is that being cheated upon, that kind of betrayal, is absolutely mm-hmm. life-shattering. So yes. established with six types of wounds, and you even go so far as to say your experience with addiction is that somebody who has an addiction, you would almost guarantee that they have one of these wounds. Is that correct?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, do I mean... you
0: think? Yeah, go ahead.
1: No, what were you going to say?
0: Well, I was going to ask you, do you see a correlation? How do you think this plays out in terms of those negative core beliefs that end up haunting people? You know, I'm not good enough. Um, there's something wrong with me. I am damaged goods. Those kind of negative core yeah. beliefs. How do you think they correlate with the six different attachment wounds.
1: So a lot of times these wounds happen when we're children. Obviously, the betrayal one can happen in an adult, in, in as an adult with a partner who ha- has betrayed them. But um, but a lot of these wounds are ex- happening when we're children, and we don't even really recognize that they're happening. For example, the neglect wound, they the, they're trying to get their, parents' attention, but their parents are just not making time for them. And so a child can't really wrap his head. A child doesn't have the cognitive ability to be able to identify, well, you know, my dad has some issues of his own, and he really needs to go get some therapy, and, and I know that I'm still important, and I matter, and, you know, my mom, is she's working two jobs, and that's why she's not able to spend time. A, a child doesn't have the cognitive ability to do that, and they live in a very egocentric paradigm and so it the only thing that they have the ability to do is to f- ask the question well why is this happening and the answer is well it must be me it has to be something about me from their egocentric perspective and so when they begin to have these wounds created and they're trying to make sense out of what, why it's happening they begin to develop these negative core beliefs. Well, it must be that there's something wrong with me or it must be that I wasn't a good enough boy or it must be that I wasn't trying hard enough or or those kind of negative core beliefs. And every time that that wound gets hit, every time that wound gets opened up again, it reinforces the negative core belief. And I use an analogy. Um, I love J.K. Rowling's, Uh, imagery when Harry Potter is in trouble because Professor Umbridge thinks that he is not telling the truth. And so she's going to send him to detention and he has to write sentences. He has to write, I must not tell lies over and over again. Uh, She has him use a magical pen that literally scratches the letters of I must not tell lies into his arm as he's writing it on the piece of paper. And it causes a lot of pain. It's very painful. And he does it the first time. And then he asks, the, he asks Professor Umbridge, well, how many times do I have to write this? And she says, As, and, 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 until it sinks in. You have to write it until it sinks in. And to me, that's exactly what happens with these negative core beliefs. They get rewritten over and over and over on our hearts. Every time we feel rejection, every time we feel neglected, that feeling of I'm not enough or I'm powerless or I can't trust anybody, or the world isn't safe, those negative core beliefs begin to be etched in our heart, and they're tattooed there. And that changes the paradigm upon which we see the world. And now we're looking for evidence, and I have evidence in air quotation marks. We're looking for evidence that will support that negative core belief now. Well, see, here's another reason why I'm not enough. And, oh, here's another reason why I'm not enough. And that becomes the paradigm In which they are viewing the world, all because they have this unresolved pain that hasn't been healed yet.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because it hasn't been healed yet, it stays prevalent in their mind. And so, what do you suggest our clients do to work through that healing process and take on? a much more positive and realistic um, core belief about oneself.
1: Yeah. So part of this process is let's identify what some of the negative core beliefs are. Um, If you can think of it like an onion, so at the core of this onion are the attachment wounds. And then the next layer are the core beliefs. And then the layer on top of that are our core emotions. There's anger, there's fear and there's sadness that uh, are part of that and then on top of that because all of that is painful the wounds are painful the negative core beliefs are painful and the emotions anger fear sadness they those can be painful to express express especially if we haven't if we lived in a family of origin where those weren't tolerated or those weren't supported and so what covers all of that is shame and shame shows up and just reinforces those negative core beliefs. And then we want to find a way to numb that. And that's where the addictive behaviors come in. We want to just numb all that because this is so incredibly painful. So, part of the process of healing is well, let's first identify whether or not you're numbing. And if you're numbing, then let's develop some tools. And, and CSAT therapists do a really great job. And full disclosure, I'm, I'm working on my CSAT, but I'm not there yet. But CSAT. Uh, have a really incredible set of tools to be able to help identify what can we do to stop numbing this behavior what is it all about so let's let's start with that first and and set up some structure let's start going to some some meetings and go to therapy and go to group and do your work so that we can figure out how you can stop numbing and once we've been able to figure out some tools to stop numbing now we got to drill a little bit deeper we got to work through the shame and we really need to tackle those negative core beliefs. A really simple but effective way of looking at that is just writing them down and then asking a question about whether or not this is true. Is this really 100% true? And the one that I use a lot is, I'm, I'm not enough. So let's write that down on a piece of paper. I'm not enough. Is that true? Well, it feels true. Yes, but is it true? Is it 100% true? And then let's add two words to the end of that sentence. I'm not enough for what? And I just did this today with one of my clients who was saying, I'm not good enough. And I wrote it on the board. I'm not good enough for blank. And then he wrote, I'm not good enough for God. And then we sat with that. Mm -hmm. And I said, do you really believe that that's true? Do you feel like you're not good enough for God? And and he said, no, I, I know that God loves me. Um, I know he does. Um, I just, I know that I'm battling with my own sense of not being good enough. And so we just that we were able to crack it open a little bit and we were able to move a little bit and see if we could shift that. And so he said, well, maybe it's not 100% true. Maybe it's only 75% true. Well, that's awesome because now we have 25% uh, space to be able to work in to see if we can continue to chisel this negative core belief until it's not there at all. And so just writing it down and asking well is it true is it's an excellent start of trying to break down this negative core belief.
0: You know you're you're singing my tune. Have you ever seen Byron Katie's work called Oh, I love Byron Katie. Uh, what work. is?
1: Yes, I love that.
0: Because that's the same thing she says. Is this true? Do you absolutely know that it's true? How would you feel without the thought? how can you turn it around right. so right and and you know we know that clients have to do the work they have to practice some of the things that may not feel comfortable to actually if you will do the fake it till you make it or act as if mm-hmm. you can believe something different about yourself
1: right yeah and and so being willing to look at it and say, wow, I have been carrying around this negative core belief that says I'm not enough. Now let me really do some some introspection. Is it really true? Can, and like Byron does, uh, Katie does, she, she turns it around. Can you give me some evidence where it isn't true? Can you give me some evidence where you have been enough? Can you give me some evidence where you have been powerful, that you've had choices? And when they start to do that we're we're starting to erase the negative core belief and replace it with a new one.
0: Well, and so you personify shame oftentimes related to the linkage up to the core belief. So talk a little bit more about how you deal with shame when it's directly attached to a limiting negative core belief.
1: Perfect. So, uh, I learned this from a man named Gary Van Warmerdam, um, and I can't. Rem- he, I think I can't remember the website, but um, I learned this. I signed up for one of his classes, and I really loved the way that he did this. He doesn't talk about it from a shame perspective, but that's how I took it away from it. So shame is this nebulous thing. Brene Brown defines it as the deep and abiding belief and feeling that I'm flawed and defective, and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. But it's it's this blanket emotion, this master emotion that just covers over everything else and, and makes it flat. But it's oftentimes hard for clients to be able to know how to work with that, how to develop some resiliency to it. And so I have – I developed six archetypes of shame, and I call them the shadows of shame. And each one of them – Has a different message that's very much tied into those negative core beliefs. They they amplify them in different ways. And when I introduce the shadows of shame, the first one that I normally introduce is the judge because that's usually the one that most people can connect with. The the at first, it's that voice in your head that's telling you, well, you're not enough. You're not trying hard enough. You're not doing it right. Why did you do that? Why are you wearing that? I can't believe that you decided to show up looking like that today that that voice in our head and and i say okay so just listen to it for a moment how loud is that voice and they usually say it's really loud how often is that voice talking to you well it doesn't ever stop it's always talking to me it's always super critical and i and i i talk about how it has this rule book about the the rules of life and it's it's probably four or five feet Thick this book and the rules in there contradict each other they don't even make sense and so one moment you're trying to follow the rules you're trying to be a good little boy or a good little girl doing this and then uh it, your teacher gives you a look that unha- is unhappy and all of a sudden you're like oh i must have broke that rule and here comes the judge and says yeah i can't believe you did that you're you're really dumb you're really stupid <laughs> And so that voice, that first shadow of shame is is the one that I introduce to people first because uh, it helps them understand, oh yeah, I can hear that. Then I say, so here's the interesting thing. That voice is not you. If you listen really closely to that shadow of shame, that judge, you'll recognize that it isn't actually you. And they'll sit with it for a moment and then they'll they'll I hear all kinds of different Um, ways that people describe it they say yeah it actually sounds like my mom or yeah it sounds like one of my uh, old school teachers or it sounds like an old witch or it sounds like a, um, a really stern man I'm like yeah so notice that that isn't you so let's just imagine that we could put that judge over here on this other chair sitting across the room from you and we start using some gestalt empty chair technique kind of thing and we put the judge over across the room and then I say, now look at that, Judge, and, and notice what it feels like to have it over there. And that, just that exercise alone is so empowering for people because they realize, man, I've been listening to this voice for years and years thinking it was me talking to me. But it wasn't actually me. It was this shame talking to me and beating me up and telling me I'm not enough. But I can move it over there, and I can stand back from it a little bit, and I, I can realize – I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to agree with what you're saying anymore. It's really an empowering um, exercise that I use a lot with people. Uh, would you like me to go over the other five, or do you want to talk about that a little bit more?
0: No, I, I love this. Go over the next
1: five. Okay. So the, the judge is the first one. The second one is the impotent one. And the impotent one is the voice that tells you you can't that you shouldn't even try. It's kind of a victim-y voice, a defeatist voice that says, I don't even know why you're trying. Uh, this is never going to work out. You should just give up. Uh, this I don't know why you're even bothering to do this. It never works out for you. Just this very victimy voice. And we we can do the same thing that we do with the judge and have that one sitting across the room. And what does that one look like? And they're able to identify that it's a very different character. It's a very different-looking a character sounds different, we can recognize those two. Oh, so there's my judge and oh, there's my impotent one. Yeah, they're both talking to me at the same time. The next one is the, the rebel. And the rebel is the voice of the addiction that basically is saying, you know what, you can just go do whatever you want to do. Who cares if it hurts anybody else? Who cares about the impact that it's going to have on anybody else's life? You need to just go do what you want to do. It's a very selfish voice that's encouraging uh, us to really drop off all our values, to cut off our values and cut off the connections that we have with the people that matter most to us and ignore all of that and just go do whatever we want to do. And so I I can help them understand that, look, oftentimes when you are wanting to go act out, that voice is, that shadow has been tapping you on the shoulder. The next one is the martyr. And the martyr is the one who really likes to tell you that your needs are not as important as anybody else's needs, that as long as you can make everybody else happy, then you've served your purpose in life. Um, it's a very martyry kind of self-sacrificing uh, defeating sort of voice that that can show up especially when you're wanting to vocalize your needs when you're wanting to state your needs this one will show up and say well no you know their needs are more important than yours so you really shouldn't um, ask for what you need the the last two are a little bit different the last two is the the politician and the politician says that you need to earn points you need to get brownie points you need to look a certain way you need to act a certain way so that you can get points so that you can get votes so that you can get people's recognition and so it's a very it's a very uh, uh, much portraying this facade that you're supposed to portray on the outside so that you can get recognition and and credit from other people and the last one which is different than the other five is the Royal and the Royal, instead of convincing you that there's something wrong with you, like the other five do in one way or another, they're all convincing you that there's something wrong with you. The Royal says you're better than everybody else, that you're entitled, you deserve and it, it sets you apart the other way, which elevates you and makes you look down on other people and think that you're better But either way, whether it's the judge or whether it's the rebel, both – or the royal, those two are actually separating us from the connections that we want. Judge says, I'm not enough. Uh, Judge says, you're not enough. There's something wrong with you. And so that makes me want to pull away and hide. And the royal says, well, you – there's nothing wrong with you. There's something wrong with them and they're horrible and they're a horrible person. And in that place, it makes me separate from them. And so it actually amplifies the abandonment, the rejection, the betrayal, the other attachment wounds that we got because of these shadows of shame are actually making, making connection almost impossible.
0: Well, you know, and the disconnection from oneself and from community occurs, which, which, continues the wounding, and so right. I can really see especially how this framework when followed can help people to transform into the, to the person that they want to be, but they have to deal with their attachment wounds they have to mm-hmm. deal with their shame they have to deal with their limiting core beliefs, and it doesn't help it doesn 't hurt <laughs> if they actually work your finding peace model that comes straight from your book finding peace yeah so tell us a little bit about how your book can transform life
1: so i wrote the book finding peace because i'd been talking about this for 10 years and people were really wanting to understand where could they learn more about that and I was pulling all of this stuff from all kinds of experts, but it wasn't condensed into one resource. So finally somebody asked, said you should write a book. And I said, Oh, okay. I'll get right on that. <laughs> and, um, and then I actually decided to get on that. And uh, I was, I wrote the book and um, it's a fusion of a fictional group. So, There are eight people who are coming to this group. Each one of them is battling with a different attachment wound or a series of attachment wounds. And they attend this group and they meet the the group therapist who starts to unpack what we've been talking about tonight and helps them start to identify what their wounds are. And then at the end of each chapter, the reader is given the exercises that the characters in the book were given. And so a lot of the readers have told me that it's almost as if they were the ninth member of the group. They really felt like they were part of that group. And they're able to do the worksheets, the workbook exercises that identify. There's a wound assessment in Chapter 1, and then there's a core beliefs assessment in Chapter 2. And as it moves forward, we start to identify these different What are the emotions that you're feeling? Where do you feel it in your body? Which shadows of shame are hijacking your life? All of that. And it starts to unpack it in a way that is, uh, at least it makes sense to me and and it makes sense to the the readers that I've had. And it really fits really well with pretty much every other mental health theory that's out there, whether it's attachment theory or CBT or DBT or or whatever the model is, it it just kind of fits with all of that. And and so it makes it easy for a a person, regardless of who they're working with, to be able to identify these things and gives them some vocabulary to be able to talk about the healing and then continue to use the tools that they're finding from other resources.
0: Well, and you have a special offer whereby people can download something free. Can you tell our listening audience... About
1: that, Yeah, so if they go to TroyLLove.com, they can download my second book, which is available for free, called The Art of Peace. And The Art of Peace was written, I was listening to Sun Tzu's Art of War, and I realized, you know, he has a lot of principles here um, that a lot of people read for how you can, you can beat other people, how you can win at battles. And I thought, you know, the battle that I'm battling is not because I want to beat other people, but it's because I want to heal from, from my addiction. That's the battle I want. But I also want to be able to do it in a way that's loving and, and em, embraces connection. And so I wrote uh, my own version of Sun Tzu's Art of War, and I call it The Art of Peace. And that's available for free as a free download if they go to TroyLLove.com.
0: Okay, so one more time, because our listening audience may have been interested in hearing about that and didn't capture that information, they have sure. to go to, again, your yeah, website they... is
1: uh-huh. Troy L, I talk fast, uh, TroyLlove.com. There's an L in the middle, so it's TroyLlove.com.
0: And they can get your second book for free. And the name again Correct. of that book is
1: The Art of Peace.
0: The Art of Peace. And so I'm a big believer in when you get free resources, when you have that opportunity, um, that was meant to be. So I'm encouraging our listening audience to get that as well as the peruse Troy peruse Troy's website because it's it's really fascinating. I mean, you've got a lot of resources available and You can see that you've made it your mission to help people to do the deep work they need to do so that they're not just band-aiding their addiction, but they are actually healing it. Troy, what would you suggest for our, our Betrayed partners who also listen to this show?
1: One of the images that really stood out to me when I, I was I a was medical social worker for a while, I worked in a, in a hospital, in an inpatient, like a regular hospital for a while. And I was fascinated by the pictures in the patient's charts of the wounds that they had. And they were kind of gross to look at, but I was fascinated by them and just how, how big they could get and, and the different types of wounds. And they had nurses that were specifically trained to do wound care for these wounds so that they could heal and the person could get back to their lives. And that's really the message that I'd say to the addicts, but particularly to the the, the betrayed partners. You've been wounded. It's really big and it hurts so badly. It's like it's, the analogy that I use with these wounds is they're like a sunburn where you, you go to the beach, you forgot to put sunscreen on, you get baked, um, but you have to go to work the next day. And so you, you put your clothes on and you're able to go to work and you're able to function, but you're just praying that nobody comes up and touches you. Because if they come up and put their arm on you or they bump up against you, oh, that causes so much pain. And that's what these wounds are like, especially the betrayal wound. It's like you can function. You can do the different things that you need to do from day to day, but there's this constant fear that the wound is going to get smacked again. The wound is going to get reopened. The wound is going to have somebody stick a knife in there and twist it around a little bit. And so what we want to be able to do is help the portrayed partner know that there is healing that's possible to heal that wound. let's do some wound care for you so that it doesn't hurt so bad so that you can actually make some more educated decisions about what's in the best interest of you and, and your loved ones, not from a fearful place of, Oh my gosh, is the wound going to get smacked again? But from an empowered place where they're able to rewrite the negative core beliefs that they, and, and rewrite them into the positive ones that say, I am enough. I'm worthy of love and belonging. I have choices. I have the ability to, to, figure out what I need to do. I can make those choices and rewriting those negative core beliefs into positive ones so that they're empowered to do what they can to help facilitate that wound care.
0: So I am curious if people want to contact you directly, how can they contact you?
1: They, again, they can go to Troy They can also email me at Troy at Troy I also um, have a podcast that I just started about a month ago that they can find also on Troialove.com and and listen to that. Um, And and I also have uh, an online course. I heard you talking about building your online course. I know the challenges that that is to build that and and understand the technology behind it. Um, And I I recently finished one of my own, and that's also available. You can learn more about that at Troialove.com.
0: Oh, I'm going to have to check that out for sure. I love to see what other people are doing. And, you know, the work that you're promoting, again, really helps with the deep wounds that have occurred from childhood on up. So, Troy L. Love, thank you so much for sharing your book, sharing your resources. Oh, our thank listening you. Audience. you need to get that free one, yeah. And keep us in tune with what you're doing, and let's have you back on the show.
1: I would love that, Carol. It's been a, such a pleasure being with you tonight. Thank you so much.
0: All right, Troy. Keep in touch and we'll talk soon.
1: All right. Thank you. Bye.
0: Uh-huh. So again, that was Troy Love, and he is an expert on wounding. He believes it's at the root of sexual addiction. And so what I know to be true is that addicts oftentimes treat their addiction with the 10 recovery tools, and that is, that's a wonderful choice. But in addition to that, you have to work on the wounding that's occurred in your life so that you don't do something called trauma reenactment, which basically says, hey, if something happened to me and I don't feel good enough, I'm going to sabotage my life and create more scenarios where I am not good enough. And that just isn't working in your favor. So go to his site and check it out and get his free book. And I really believe you're a work in progress, but you have to work it. Now, as I say at the end of every show, They'll only be one of you at all times, so I fearlessly want you to have the courage to be yourself and work on those things that you know will create the life you deserve. You make it a great weekend. We'll see you later for more sex help with Carol the Coach.